Well, good morning again. Uh, This week we are beginning a new series looking at the life of Joseph that will carry us through the spring. Um, And you might be asking, like me, why are we studying Joseph? Um, So I want to ask this question. Do you ever feel like your life and your circumstances are out of control? Um, You're experiencing so much pain or difficulty or trauma or confusion or relational discord, and you're left wondering... God seems to be absent here. Uh, He wouldn't allow this stuff to happen to me. He's either incompetent and he doesn't care, or he doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't care. Um, What is God doing here? Well, this novella, um, as as some commentators talk about it, this final part of the book of Genesis, um, looking at the life of Joseph, really is the best place in Scripture that helps us see how God is at work and how he's faithful to his promises even in the midst of great pain and confusion and uncertainty and his seeming absence. Um, To some degree, that's where we find ourselves as a church right now. We've experienced great sadness and confusion and uncertainty in recent months and we're in a season right now where we're seeking to be faithful to God, wondering what in the world he's up to. Um, That's why we're looking at Joseph right now. Uh, We hear at the very end of the story in chapter 50 that God doesn't waste any circumstance, any pain, any suffering, and though he's not the cause of sin and he hates it and he hates it so much that he sends Jesus to come defeat it and rescue us from it, God is at work and he can use even the most broken people and the most broken circumstances to accomplish his saving purposes and nothing is going to get in the way of this God getting what he wants. And what he wants is a people for himself. So this morning, we're going to jump into this story by looking at Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Hear the word of our God given for his glory and for our good. Please read along with me. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people throughout uh, 
all of the generations. We thank you that you are a good God who keeps his promises. Um, Help us, meet us in this place. Uh, Transform us by your spirit. Soften us to your word and to the story of your gospel. May we rehearse it over and over again until it breaks through our dark and twisted hearts and that we become soft and lovers of you and that we might spread your good news and your love and your faithfulness everywhere that we are. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak through it this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies, and this isn't a tacit endorsement, but it is I like it, and so we can talk about it later. But um, one of my favorite movies is The Royal Tenenbaums by Wes Anderson. Uh, it's based on J.D. Salinger's uh, Glass family, and it tells the story of a broken and dysfunctional family. Um, parents are divorced. The father has a favorite son. There are three child prodigies that experience great individual success and great pain and suffering and failure. The three kids don't really like each other. They don't really get along. They don't trust each other. And throughout the movie, you're asking, what good is going to come of this family? Um, Can anything good happen to these people? How are they going to forgive one another? How are they going to come together as a family and have an honest, healthy, loving family? And sadly, it's through a series of deeply tragic events in the story that they finally begin to move towards one another that they begin to forgive and love one another. Um, And their family, instead of being further broken and torn apart, is actually rescued and saved. And that's really where we find ourselves this morning in the story of Joseph and Jacob's family. God creates Adam and Eve, and they experience perfect relationship with God, with each other, and with the world around them. And then... They distrust God's goodness toward them, and they disobey God, and sin enters the picture, and there's this cosmic explosion where sin damages and destroys everything that it touches. But God, immediately in his grace, promises a rescuer in Genesis 3.16. He immediately promises that through the seed of Eve, God will destroy Satan. God will destroy evil and sin and death. And the rest of Scripture tells the story of God rescuing and creating a people for himself, culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save us and to form a people for himself. What we see throughout the book of Genesis is that God is being faithful to this seed promise of a rescuer, to this calling of and creating a people for himself, And so we move from Adam to Noah to Abraham, who Abraham has promised that even though he's very old and Sarah is very old, he's going to be the father of many nations, that God is going to be his God and they will be his people. And so God promises Abraham three things. He promises a relationship with him, he promises a people, and he promises a land to these people. So these three promises are really driving the book of Genesis and the family that's narrowed from Abraham to, then to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob. And now we're brought into, we're, we're rushed into the story and we're brought into Jacob's family. And we're going to see that Jacob's family become the 12 tribes of Israel, that they eventually become the whole nation of Israel. But as we come to this section of scripture this morning, we see there's a problem 
This is a dysfunctional and a divided family. There's favoritism, there's hatred, there's jealousy, there's insensitivity. And that leads to what Joe will tell us next week. It leads to brothers selling their dad's favorite son into slavery, pretending he was murdered, um, engaging in this intense cover-up, and then lives of pain and suffering and brokenness are the result. So what is God doing? How will he accomplish his purpose in this broken family? How will God be faithful? Where is God in this story? And so this morning, as we introduce our study of Joseph together, we're not going to moralize the story. We're not going to say, be like Joseph, or don't be like Joseph in this case. Um, Don't be like Jacob's family. You know, there is some wisdom that we can glean from their interactions, but the Bible isn't written to help us be good people in order to get the good life. It's not, look at these great heroes of the faith and be like them. There are no heroes in the Bible except for Jesus. Every person in this story and throughout Scripture is an absolute train wreck. But the Bible is meant to show us how God's good grace intrudes into our lives against our wills to rescue us for God's sake and for His purposes. So this morning, we're going to consider just two things. One, that God is faithful and at work to fulfill his promises, even when it looks like he's absent. And two, God is faithful to fulfill his promises, even in the midst of his people's failure. So first, God is faithful and at work to fulfill his promises, even when it looks like he's absent. Up until this point in the book of Genesis, God's been physically, verbally, relationally present throughout the book. You know, he walks Uh, He meets with people. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. He speaks with them. He appears in dreams. He wrestles Jacob. But starting in chapter 37, there's no direct communication from God. There's no visions. There's no appearances. There's no words from God. And so we find Jacob and Joseph and the brothers in the same world that you and I find ourselves in. We're living in the world of God's providence. It looks and it feels like God is absent. But he's carefully, he's rightly, he's wisely, he's powerfully preserving and governing all of his creatures, all of creation, and all of their actions. No, he's not directly intervening, but he's driving and orchestrating every minute detail in the story to accomplish his purposes. We'll see that more in coming weeks, especially next week, but the table is being set for us this morning. So at the end of chapter 50, as we said earlier, Joseph, we hear him say to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Remember, God is fulfilling his seed promise. He's carrying the line that started with Adam that went through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and will come through what we'll see, the the wicked and the later redeemed Judah ultimately to bring this promised rescuer of Jesus into the picture. And God has promised to turn this family, this broken, dysfunctional family, into a great nation. But right now, the brothers hate each other. Uh, The father prefers Joseph over the rest of the sons, and the sons know it. And this younger son is having what what his brothers perceive to be delusions of grandeur. He's telling them that they're going, he's going to rule over them. He's going to rule over his whole family. And his whole family, including his father, is going to bow before him. 
So what's God up to in this story? Well, we have to see and we have to believe that God's redemptive ways, his plans and his purposes are not our plans and purposes. Which of us in this room would choose to grow up in a dysfunctional family that would eventually explode on itself in violent and wicked and deceitful and traumatic ways? Which of us would choose to be sold as a slave and carried into a foreign culture? None of us would. Yet, that's God's perfect plan for Joseph and his family. It doesn't make sense to us. It's not our plan. Ian Duguid um, writes this. He says, In our own lives, we quickly assume that whenever terrible or wherever terrible abuse takes place, or relationships tragically fall apart, or traumatic sin blights our lives, that God must surely be absent. Nothing could be more further from the truth. As we said earlier, certainly God hates sin and abuse, and he neither causes sin nor condones it. And we're responsible for our own sin. As James 1 uh, says, it flows directly from our wicked hearts. Yet, Duguid continues, God's redemptive ways do not lead us around conflict abuse, divorce, and broken families, or even away from the expression and outworking of our own sinful natures. Instead, his perfect plan for our lives often takes us right through the eye of the storm, where our dysfunction and sin, along with that of our family and our friends, is on full and tragic display, so that the gospel of God's powerful grace and his sovereign mercy can be equally on powerful display. So in your own life this morning, do you feel like God has left you? Like he's abandoned you? Do you find yourself asking, why am I going through this? This hurt, this pain, it's too much to bear. When all you see is pain and hurt and dysfunction and brokenness and suffering, we need to step back. We need to let Scripture and the truth of it speak into our circumstances rather than letting our circumstances shape the truth that we see in Scripture. God is not absent. He is at work. And he's faithful to fulfill his promises to his people, even and especially when it looks like he's not there. Johnny Erickson Tata says this, God allows those he loves to experience that which he hates in order to bring about his saving plans. The original hearers of this story are the second generation Israelites that have been that are wandering in the desert after the Exodus. They know that God rescued this family. They that when all looked lost here in this story, especially with these brothers, that God saved them and made them into a people. They know that because they exist. Because if they would have all have died, they wouldn't be sitting wandering in the desert right then. And so they know the end of the story. And we know the end of our story too. Um, If we're God's family, if we come to him and in faith and repentance and we trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, then we know from Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our God finishes what he starts, and he is faithful to every one of his promises. He sends Jesus to live a perfect life of obedience, to suffer and to die on a cross, taking our place, achieving the ultimate rescue and reclaiming of a people for himself, and he rises again from the dead, demonstrating that he truly is God and that we can trust 
everything this Jesus has to say because he never goes back on a promise. So what's God teaching you right now this morning? God's at work in the life of Joseph and his brothers in this story. He's shaping them. He's forming them into the people that he desires and that he's going to use them to be. But being formed and being shaped often comes through trials, through temptation, through suffering. Our stories, every one of them, often include things that are not good, things that we wished would not have happened. But the beauty of God's grace is that he doesn't waste one circumstance. He doesn't waste one relationship. He doesn't, rela- he doesn't waste one bit of suffering. He uses every part of our story to draw us to himself, to train us to rely upon and to trust in and rest in him in the midst of our despair and in the midst of our confusion and in the midst of our pain. And he uses every joy and every triumph, every failure, every abuse, every pain and every suffering to bring about his saving purposes for us, to shape us into the people that he longs for us to be, that we will one day be when we come face to face with him. So no matter what you're going through this morning, whatever pain and suffering you're enduring, you can trust that our God has not left you, that he's with you every step of the way, and that you can trust that he will see it through because he is faithful to fulfill all of his promises, and he doesn't waste anything, but he even uses those painful and difficult experiences to bring about our ultimate good. Next, the next thing we see is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises even in the midst of his people's failures. If you look at this story this morning, and we're going to run through it here really quickly, um, it's filled with failure and sin over and over again. We have Jacob showing favoritism to his youngest son, Joseph. And and we ask the question, well, why is he showing favoritism? Well, one, it's because Joseph is the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. But verse 3 shows us, Um, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had him at his old age. What's going on there is, if you remember the story, Isaac is born to Abraham in his old age. Jacob and Esau are born to Isaac and Rebekah after there's a a season of time where Rebekah is childless. And now Joseph is born to Jacob in his old age. So maybe Jacob is thinking, you know, Joseph is going is to be the child of promise that, that God promised Adam and Eve in the garden. He's going to keep this thing going of the younger son being the chosen one. And so he spoils him. He dotes on him at the expense of all his other sons. And they see it. And they know it. And they feel it. And verse 3 continues. says, he made an ornate robe for him. You know, this is our flannel board Sunday school. Like, this is the Technicolor dream coat, right? Like Donny Osmond on stage dancing. Um, it's really a hard word to translate, and the only other place that it's found in the scripture is in 2 Samuel 13, and it's referred to as a royal robe that a princess wears. So whether it's many colored, whatever it looked like, what we know about this robe is that it marked Jacob's special affection for Joseph and was a perpetual reminder to Joseph and to all the other brothers of where they stood with their father. Jacob, in this story, what we see, he essentially has Joseph as his idol. He's the thing that he favors most. He's the thing that he worships and protects and loves the most. 
Now you'd think Jacob would remember his family history, how he was constantly vying for and trying to get the approval of his father Isaac, but he could never get it because his brother Esau was his dad's favorite son. And so he had to deceive Esau. He had to deceive Isaac to get the special blessing from from him. But sin, as you and I both know, has a, a funny way of trickling down into our families, no matter how hard we fight against it. The sins of our parents, no matter how many times we say, I will never be like this, typically come out in us in deep and in broken ways. But then what we see is this favoritism. It has great, it has damaging effects on the rest of the family, on Jacob's sons. Joseph, knowing that he's his father's favorite son, becomes entitled and proud and arrogant and hurtful and insensitive and a tattletale. Um, Verse 2, he's out with four of his brothers. And it says that he brought his father a bad report about them. Now, this word for bad report here, it could, it could mean a false report. It could mean just a blatant lie about his brothers where he's trying to get them into trouble. But it could also mean a true report that's given with the intention of damaging its victims. So based on the brothers' previous behavior, if you go a couple of chapters back, um, it's likely that Joseph's report is true. Um, but what we see here is that, that Joseph doesn't go to his brothers. He doesn't confront them face to face. He doesn't go to them to talk about it. He doesn't let love cover a multitude of sins. He seeks to continue to damage their relationships by going and tattling on them to his father. And so whatever's going on there, this leads us to verse 4 where we read that the brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than the other sons and they hated him. And they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. This is one of three times in the passage where where the word hate is used to describe the brothers' feelings towards Joseph. They hate him so much. They can't even say shalom to him. They can't even say peace be with you. They can't even greet him and say good morning. Imagine the, the tension that's just building and building in this house and out in the fields. Joseph walks into the room and everyone goes silent and they stop and they stare out of disgust and hatred. And then... God throws a lit match into a powder keg, and Joseph starts having these dreams. And Joseph doesn't read the room. He's arrogant, and he's proud, and he's a a sociopath. He's insensitive to the effects that he has on other people. Um, That might be pretty harsh, but at at the worst, that's what's going on, right? Joseph doesn't care how he affects other people. And so he says, listen, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. His brothers, his older brothers, respond with disgust and with sarcastic disbelief. Joseph, don't you know how it goes? Don't you know that that's not the way things work in our culture? Don't you know that the younger always bows to the older? We are never going to bow before you. Do you intend to reign over us? Do you really Joseph, do you really intend to rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream, and it says, and what he had said. And what he had said means that even the way Joseph explained the dream to them was condescending and arrogant and prideful and hurtful and mean-spirited. And then Joseph has another dream. 
And does he learn from the last time how things went in his family at the dinner table when he explained the last dream to them? You know, maybe I shouldn't tell them. Maybe they might hate me even more. Um, Maybe I shouldn't be an insensitive jerk to my brothers. Does that stop Joseph? Absolutely not. Joseph tells them again, and this time it's even bigger. Eleven stars and the sun and the moon are bowing down before him. And this gets so bad that Jacob even has to rebuke his favorite son. And this, this rebuke there, it's a harsh word. It's a harsh word with reprimand. And it's, it's Jacob correcting Joseph. And it has a hint of anger in it. And what it results in is more and more hatred. But something even deeper than that. It says this, there's this deep jealousy that begins in the brothers now. And so this underlying sin of Jacob, it's poisoned the whole family. And brothers are turning against each other. And we're left wondering, how is God going to rescue this people? How is he going to form a nation out of this family? They're so dysfunctional. They're so wicked and evil to each other. God shouldn't use them at all. But then we take a step back and we look at ourselves and we see we too are broken and dysfunctional. And we too are full of selfishness and sin. We, like Jacob and his family, we don't deserve God's kindness. We don't deserve his favor. We don't deserve his grace and his faithfulness to us. We're hurtful to the people around us. We build and we harbor resentments against people in our own families, against people in our church. We're jealous of and we hate those around us for getting more or for having more or for doing more or getting more recognition than us. And yet, God doesn't give up on Jacob. And God doesn't give up on Joseph. And God doesn't give up on the brothers. And God doesn't give up on you. Our sin repeatedly disciplines and restrains us and it produces humility in us. And God uses even our sinfulness to bring about his purposes. But because it, it can produce humility in us, it, it shows us that, that God didn't choose us simply because we're just great and obedient and wonderful people to be around. Every one of us in this room are deeply and profoundly and thoroughly broken and rebellious, who if we are left to ourselves, if even for a moment, cannot remain faithful to God even for just a second if we're left to ourselves. But the good news of the story, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the rest of the scripture is that our God is a great savior for great sinners like Joseph, like his brothers, and like you and me. He's a God who delights in rescuing and redeeming hopeless, lost cases and turning them into a united community that worships him together and sings of his grace and not of their own goodness. But ultimately, this morning, this story is not a story about what God is up to in the lives of his people. It's about what God is doing in redeeming a people for himself in Jesus. If all you see is pain and hurt and dysfunction, again, I want you to hear that God is with you that he is at work, and he even uses those terrible things to bring about his purposes for you. And we see it ultimately in the life of Jesus on the cross. God uses unthinkable injustice and wickedness 
to bring about the best thing that has ever happened in our world, to bring about the resurrection and the saving of a people for himself. Jesus, the favorite son, the one dressed in a purple royal robe, he doesn't come proudly and arrogantly and manipulate and demean and domineer over his people. Instead, he comes in humility. He comes in gentleness and kindness and compassion. And he willingly gives up that robe of righteousness and he goes naked to the cross for you and for me. Jesus, the only one who was perfect, was sacrificed on the cross in the place of sinners like us so that we could be given his perfect royal robe of righteousness. And this Jesus was rejected for his claims that he was the Lord, that he was the Son of God, that he came to rule over his people in the world and to bring the kingdom of God. And what we'll see in the story of Joseph and his brothers as it develops, that the brothers' rejection of Joseph, their hatred, and their sin against him actually becomes the means by which God saves them from death and famine and brings about their life and salvation. We too rejected Jesus. We rebelled against him and that led to his unjust crucifixion where he became our sin, where he took the penalty that you and I deserve for rebelling against God and it was through the rejecting of Jesus that you and I are actually brought into God's family. It's the way that we come in faith and in repentance to him and that's the way that we know God's unchanging, faithful love and forgiveness, his enduring presence and peace so that we know that because Jesus was rejected by the Father, you and I will never, ever be rejected by him. So I want you to know this this morning as we close. God is committed to caring for his people no matter what mess they find themselves in. We see it in the story of God shaping Israel through Joseph and through his brothers, and we see it ultimately in Jesus coming to seek and to save sinners. This God is faithful, and he is at work, and he will finish what he started in you, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. He is not absent. He will be faithful to you, and he will be faithful to his purposes. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to us, for your word and your promise that you will one day come to undo and to defeat sin once and for all, to get rid of sickness and death and evil and wickedness, and that we will live with you forever in perfect obedience, that we won't even be able to sin, that we won't even be able to think a hurtful or or mean-spirited word. Um, We thank you that you love us, that you are faithful to us. Help us to see you in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our brokenness that we might trust you, that we might trust and rely on you more than what our circumstances say. It's in Jesus' name that we come to you now. Amen.